Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to present uh, someone who's going to enlighten us this evening. Uh, a little bit of background about Chris, but first, let me talk about me. Uh, I was an intern at the Cato Institute, one of the first three, in 1978. And Chris was an intern at the Cato Institute in 1987, so roughly some years before all the students here were born. And after that, he went on and did some sort of inconsequential things. He became an officer of the Navy, got a PhD in history, got married, had children, and then came back to Cato, and his life began 15 years ago. Uh, he's now the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies, and I think you'll find out why it's such a pleasure to be able to work with him. Chris. Thank you, Tom. Um, Tom told me that uh, he was feeding you all uh, Thai food tonight so I wouldn't have to worry about keeping you awake. Uh, and then they bring out what looked like, he claimed it was chicken, but I think it looked like turkey. So uh, if you're all sleepy, we know why. Um, so um, I'm a historian. Uh, I think Tom mentioned that. I got my PhD in history here at, in Philadelphia at Temple University. And uh, I want to talk tonight about how history informed the founders' views on foreign policy, um, and especially their views on war. Um, and then I'm probably going to spend a little bit of time on what changed and why. Uh, and uh, I start with what we all should recognize is, you know, we have our own little little red books, right? We have our own little red books. And, and uh, we've all, of course, committed this to memory, but uh, occasionally if I cheat and I have it dog-eared, uh, but uh, there, of course, is the preamble, but the relevant parts of uh, what the uh, Constitution stipulates in terms of foreign policy is, of course, in Article One, Section 8. Uh, and these are all the things that they said about uh, what Congress shall have the power to do, what Congress shall grant to define and punish offenses, declare war, raise and support armies, uh, maintain a navy, and make rules for the uh, military, and then, of course, to call forth the militia. Now, it's almost quaint to look at those, <laughs> look at those rules, which are now not followed very closely anymore, and to ask the question, why is it that the founders created a government that had so many constraints on the ability of the new government to wage war? Why is it that they were so anxious about standing armies uh, and uh, armies in peacetime and why they had this attachment to militias? <clears throat> well, James Madison at the Constitutional Convention a standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have always been the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, this again is how the, the, the founders read history too. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war wherever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending, have enslaved the people. The problem, too, with armies is that they tend to fight wars. That's what they do. And uh, James Madison was not a great fan of wars either. 
Of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debt and taxes and armies. Debts and taxes are the known instrument for bringing the many under the domination of the few. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of perpetual continual warfare. Uh, shorter version, war is the health of the state. The founders understood this at their core. I'm gonna quote quite a bit from Madison, but he was hardly alone. Uh, even, uh, and, and he said, in addition to sort of limiting the state's power to war, the other way that they did this was by constraining the executive branch. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly, with studied care, val uh, vested the question of war in the legislature. Later, uh, in an interesting exchange with Hamilton, he said that the clause of the Constitution that vested the war powers in the Congress and not the executive was the most important in the entire document. So Madison's views in particular were extremely well known with respect to war and warfare and standing armies. But as I said, he wasn't alone. And uh, George Washington, no pacifist, he, uh, he also agreed with Madison and others that we should not maintain a large standing army, which is always uh, a threat to liberty, but is particularly inauspicious to Republican liberty. Most of you have probably seen these quotes. Um, part of the reason why the founders adopted this position is because they had a different vision for how the United States, the new nation, should interact with other countries, the foreign policy that it should conduct. Also in the farewell address, Washington said, the great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. Thomas Jefferson agreed in his first inaugural he pledged to pursue a foreign policy of peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. They believed they could adopt such a posture on foreign affairs because they saw their strategic situation as relatively benign and not requiring a massive military in the first place. In a letter to a friend, Washington said, separated as we are, by a world of water from other nations, if we are wise, we shall avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of their politics and involved in their destructive wars. Now, when I see these comments by these men, uh, as uh, Rob pointed out very uh, eloquently today, uh, a handful of states tucked along the eastern seaboard of the middle of North America. And I ask you, was it naive for Washington and Madison and Jefferson and the rest of them to believe that their strategic situation was fortuitous? Well, 
there was that, right? The British were still in Canada and, of course, also making mischief in the Northwest Territories. There was Spain in Florida doing a lousy job of it, by the way, but they were there nonetheless. And then, of course, there were powerful navies, especially the British and French navies, that had a nasty habit of just sort of rounding up people whenever they wanted and saying, you there, you look like you're a deserter from the Navy, uh, we're going to take you on board. They called it impressment, looked an awful lot like slavery. On top of all of that, there were, of course, the constant predations along the frontier by the uh, various Native American tribes who were fairly anxious to halt the encroachment of these uh, rapacious uh, Anglos. Um, and I say, if you, if you map it out this way, it looks pretty dangerous to me in 1796 or 1800 at the time when these men were getting this government up and running. And my point is simply that they created this new system of government, this constitution, one of the key components of why the, the sort of the selling propositions for this, for the new constitution, was that it would provide a stronger means of defense against foreign threats. That the individual states could not defend themselves as well as a single federal government. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that they were obviously uh, surrounded by hostile enemies, powerful enemies, uh, they believed even more strongly that war is the health of the state. They believed even more strongly that peaceful, peacetime armies are a threat to liberty. And I think it's worthwhile to pause and consider our situation today relative to where they were back then. They were still invested in this idea of a limited government with limited powers, and especially with an army that was raised as necessary and disbanded when it wasn't. Around the time of uh, the anniversary of the 45th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, John Quincy Adams gave a fairly famous speech. Of course, they didn't have cable back then, so they entertained each other by speeches. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to read it, I, I encourage you to take a look at it. It's, it's, it's really quite an important document. In many respects, it sort of repeats the central themes of Washington's farewell address, but uh, Adams added some rhetorical flourishes, shall we say. Um, he if initially tried to connect the ideas of the Declaration to the foreign policy of the new nation, and he explained that the Americans had with one voice proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature and the only lawful foundation of government. The nation had held forth the hand of honest friendship of equal freedom, of generous reciprocity, and uniformly spoken among them, though often to heedless and often disdainful ears, the language of equal liberty, equal justice, and equal rights. But while Adams believed that the Americans should proclaim or speak these principles, he was equally adamant that we not fight for them. On the contrary, the United States, quote, without a single exception, respected the independence of other nations while asserting and maintaining her own. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will America's heart 
her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. His pledge to remain aloof from foreign disputes was limited by the still young country's meager capacity for waging war. Uh, it was, in other words, a largely symbolic statement, as was the famous Munno Doctrine, which, of course, John Quincy Adams had a major hand in writing as the Secretary of State for President James Monroe. Um, Many of you have probably seen the sort of critical elements of the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, it said that the United States would uh, uh, stand on behalf of uh, European non-interference in the Americas uh, and uh, a threat to oppose further European colonization in the United States backyard. Now, this promise was quite an empty threat. Again, the United States was in no position to actually forcibly prevent this from happening, but thankfully, uh, most of Europe didn't really care. Uh, they were exhausted by the Napoleonic Wars. They were fearful of domestic disturbances that might upset the delicate social balance at home, and they turned their eyes instead to other places like Asia and Africa where the indigenous population uh, were even less able to defend themselves than the newly independent states in North and South America. U.S. leaders in this period then, after the statement of the Monroe Doctrine, they took advantage of this country's good fortune. They focused their attention on building the institutions of government at home and on developing the nation's vast resources. They were extremely reluctant to become embroiled in foreign conflicts. They occasionally deployed military force to extend and consolidate their hold on lands west of the Mississippi at the expense of the various Native American tribes that got in their way. They, of course, tussled with the Mexicans who lost roughly 40% of their territory. And by the end of the, uh, near the end of the 19th century, had consolidated their control in most of the contemporary parts of North America, the parts obviously in between Canada and Mexico. So during this period, actually I should go back. Oh, I've given it away. Um, You've seen this part. Well, just a little, little bit of uh, suspense here. If you read and study the justifications that were offered up for territorial expansion in the middle and late 19th century, continental expansion, Americans justified this uh, mostly on the basis of both economic and security grounds. They uh, had eyes on land uh, separated by water as well, places like Cuba, Santo Domingo, and other Caribbean islands, then of course Hawaii and the Philippines, later Panama. Uh, by the early 20th century, of course, uh, the United States had acquired a collection of colonies through conquest and coercive diplomacy uh, that rivaled that of many traditional European allies, uh, European, European empires. The single factor, however, that differentiated, I think, the United States from that of other empires was not the scale of the expansion, but the reluctance that accompanied it. The United States was, writes uh, Richard Immerman, a historian who I studied with at Temple, he writes, the United States was an imperialist with a history of opposing imperialism. It encountered an unprecedented amount of trouble imposing its will on its dependence. 
And in the raucous rough and tumble of American politics, there were always those who accused their political adversaries of betraying the nation's most cherished principles whenever some major territorial acquisition was in the offing. And even you see this even in the case of there was even some opposition to the Louisiana Purchase on the grounds that the United States was uh, expanding too far too fast. And of course, in the case of the Mexican Wars and whatnot. Each successive wave of territorial ex expansion invoked a similar set of justifications, however, and all could be traced to a reasonable attempt to establish a security perimeter within which the peoples of the United States could prosper and grow in peace. Americans desired ample arable land. They obtained it. They needed navigable waterways. They developed those. They needed a buffer against potential adversaries. They established it. All of that occurred in the middle and late 19th century in the contiguous United States. By the late 19th century, however, it became harder to justify territorial expansion on those same terms. The acquisition in particular of the Philippines, this is a great picture, by the way, that's a, that right there, where are we? Oh, wait, no, no right there. I don't know my pointer. Uh, that's the Olympia, which is uh, Admiral Dewey's flagship, which is anchored not far from here, tied up not far from here at Penn's Landing here in Philadelphia. You might want to go visit it soon because it is, after all, a metal ship and it's very old. Um, and then there's a wonderful picture. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's the, uh, there's the Olympia sinking the, the Spanish harbor in Manila Bay. Um, this is a wonderful picture, too, of, I don't know if you've ever seen this. This is a TR single-handedly digging the Panama Canal. <laughs> Bully. Uh, so so it's, a, it's a great photo. I've seen it many times. Uh, and of course, that's the, uh, the raising of the flag over the uh, palace in uh, Hawaii, kind of finishing the annexation of Hawaii in 1898. I want to stop just for a few minutes and talk about a one of my favorite speeches in American history uh, following the acquisition of the Philippines. Uh, of course, this occurred in the Spanish-American War, 1898. And as I said, there was this long tradition of uh, the anti-imperialists sort of pushing against these arguments for the expansion of the territory of the United States. Uh, but the acquisition of the Philippines, which, again, you don't have to be, I, I, I put a map up there for those of you whose, whose map, mental maps aren't that strong, but it's very far away from the United States of America, um, 8,600 miles from Washington, D.C., roughly. Um, if the U.S. government could justify expanding its writ to an archipelago of islands that far away, then there was no practical limit to what it could do or what the United States of America might ultimately entail. And so, this conflict engendered a brief but spirited debate on the part of the anti-imperialists. One of my favorite speeches is by William Graham Sumner, delivered uh, at Yale University, January 16, 1899. The title of this speech is The Conquest of the United States by Spain. The conquest of the United States by Spain. Yes, he was aware of what actually happened in Manila Bay. So just, I, I'm, I'm, that's not a typo. The conquest of the United States by Spain. Sumner contended 
that Spain was the very epitome of an imperialistic state and that United, the United States had been since its founding the chief representative of the revolt and reaction against that kind of state. Expansion and imperialism, Sumner continued, would entail throwing away some of the most important elements of the American symbol and adopting those of Spain. If we believe in liberty as an American principle, he went on, why do we not stand for it? Why are we going to throw it away to enter upon a Spanish policy of dominion and regulation? Now recall in Adams' speech from July 4th, 1821, he had warned that an ambitious foreign policy would subvert cherished American principles of individual liberty and limited government. Sumner saw it happening before his very eyes. Imperialism and its handmaiden militarism was eating up all the products of science and art, defending the energy of the population and wasting its savings. He also had some words about the imperialist enthusiasm for expansion and their tendency towards some rather grandiose promises and, uh, and foolishly ambitious objectives, all at a time when the nation was struggling to deal with urgent problems right here at home, including, for example, vicious racism and rampant political corruption. He said, quote, upon a little serious examination, the offhand disposal of an important question of policy by declare, declaration that Americans can do anything proves to be only a silly piece of bombast. And upon a little reflection, we find our hands are quite full at home of problems by the solution of which the peace and happiness of the American people could be greatly increased. In a later era, we would call this focusing on nation building at home. Our system of government, he went on, was set, had set limitations on us. Our government was limited. We cannot govern dependencies consistently with our political system, and if we try, we will fail. If we try, our state will become just another empire. We would have thrown away that which makes us unique and special. Uh, it's a wonderful speech. It's, again, one of these sort of entertaining speeches. It's at libertarianism.org. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yet. So this spectacular rise to power, which I've talked about uh, over the course of the 19th and 20th century, was always tempered by this classical liberal concern about limiting the power of the state. Um, the next great incident in American history that changed our approach to foreign policy uh, even further was, of course, the First and Second World Wars. I want to just focus on a few of the lessons that were drawn from these two wars and how they shaped the conduct of foreign policy for the balance of the 20th century. Um, there were three big lessons that were drawn. I'm going to focus mostly on one. One was that the uh, chaos that ensued after World War I uh, and the inability of the several states to block uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Italy, and most of, uh, in parts of uh, Africa, and of course the Japanese in China, was for the want of a dominant, single dominant power to act as the policeman. That was one lesson that took away. Another lesson was that trade, which can be a cause for peace, had actually become a great cause 
cause for conflict in the middle of the, between the First and Second World Wars. And that was something that the, that the uh, uh, policymakers after the end of World War II were rather desperate to avoid. But I want to focus mostly on the third lesson that was taken away, which was no more Munichs, no more appeasement. That dictators must be con confronted uh, whenever they try something. Uh, not so surprising, many of these leaders who had grown up and were there during the 30s and, and early World War II were observing this, uh, and they saw this deepening Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, and, and they, they approached this problem with that single model in mind. Every single incident was another Munich. Every single little place was another Sudetenland. And, in, and, er, and therefore, they had to stop every one of these attempts by the Soviet Union everywhere, or else it would spark a much wider war, a much wider conflict. Um, there are several examples uh, uh, that you may not be as familiar with, including like uh, Azerbaijan and in Turkey, but the best case, I think, actually is Korea. Uh, in June of 1950, when the North, uh, North Korea's Kim Il-sung sent troops across uh, the 38th parallel into the south, Truman responded by force. We all know this. What you may not know is that before that incident, the National Security Council with Truman in the chair had concluded that Korea, quote, is of little strategic value to the United States and that commitment to the United States use of military force in Korea would be ill-advised. This was a private conclusion on the part of the National Security Council. But after the aggression, we of course know Truman's perspective changed. And this is what he wrote. In my generation, this was not the first occasion when the strong had attacked the weak. I recalled some earlier instances, Manchuria, Ethiopia, Austria. I remembered how each time that the democracies failed to act, it had encouraged the aggressors to keep going ahead. I felt certain that if South Korea was allowed to fall, communist leaders would be emboldened to override nations closer to our own shores. If this was allowed to go unchallenged, it would mean a third world war, just as similar incidents had brought on the second world war. In the ensuing years of the Cold War, uh, U.S. policymakers justified U.S. intervention in to shore up states threatened by, uh, from both within and without, uh, and of course now we call it the domino theory. All right. um, and yet, again, think about how different this approach is from that that was recommended on the part of the founders. Instead of assuming a posture of non-intervention, the presumption instead shifted from why intervene to why not. Now on the other hand, I'm a historian, I try to put myself in the place of these policymakers at the time these decisions were made. And here's what they were looking at. There's, of course, a picture from Churchill's speech at Westminster College, the Iron Curtain speech, Truman Doctrine, Marshall Plan, National Security Act of 1947, which created, among other things, the Air Force, the National Security Council, elements of the CIA, Berlin Air Airlift, Berlin Blockade, Soviet nuclear test, Chinese Civil War, Korean War, which I already mentioned. In a period of just a few years, US leaders were convinced that a next world war was right around the corner. And I think it's not unreasonable uh, to, to sort of understand this from their perspective. But if you haven't seen it, I wanna talk a little bit about a document called NSC 68. 
This was first presented to Truman in April of 1950, uh, sort of a, a grand strategic vision for how the United States would compete with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And when he first saw this document, he put it in a drawer, uh, quite literally. Uh, he just wasn't quite ready to get his head around what was being proposed in this document. But then, the shock of Korea, the victory of the Chinese Communists, the advances of the Soviet nuclear program, all of these things convinced him to change his mind. And he approved the document as official policy in September of 1950, and it guided U.S. policy for a good part of the Cold War, even though it wasn't publicly revealed until the 1970s. And these are some of the things that it said. The Soviet Union is animated by a new fanatic faith, antithetical to our own, and seeks to impose its absolute authority over the rest of the world. The risks we face are of a new order of magnitude, commensurate with the total struggle in which we are engaged. These risks crowd in on us in a shrinking world of polarized power, so as to give us no choice, ultimately, between meeting them effectively or being overcome by them. He also said, the National Security Council, uh, NSC 68, also said, the United States could achieve a substantial increase in output and thereby increase the allocation of resources to a buildup of the economic and military strength of itself and its allies without suffering a decline in its real standard of living. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should. Growth solves everything and government spending contributes to economic growth, guns and butter. Voila. Writes Princeton scholar Aaron Friedberg, who wrote a terrific book called In the Shadow of the Garrison State, he said, quote, NSC 68 was, in essence, a battering ram within which its authors hoped to shatter the existing budget ceiling. And one might also say, in conjunction with all the other national security reforms of the late 1940s and early 1950s, it also shattered any further public resistance to a large and permanent military. By the time the authors of NSC 68 had established a budgetary estimate for its military proposals after the outbreak of war in Korea, it envisioned a defense budget of as much as $40 billion in then dollars, which was an increase of nearly 300%. A follow-on study approved on Truman's last day in office, January 19, 1953, reaffirmed NSC 68's basic arguments, including the, with respect to the need and possible advantages of high military spending to boost the economy. His final budget projected defense spending of $45.5 billion in fiscal year 1954, which looks like this. So, of course, that's World War II, that's where we started, that's where we were by 46 and 47. And from there to the peak in 1953 and 54. That's what Truman and his advisors were explaining was necessary to maintain our survival and was not merely uh, uh, necessary but even beneficial. And thus did Madison's warnings come true. War was the health of the state, and in the eyes of many, in the early 1950s, that was okay. That was okay. Well, not everyone felt that way. Dwight Eisenhower. I don't know how much time I have to talk about Dwight Eisenhower. I could go on at some length. I wrote my dissertation about him. 
Um, I won't do that to you. Um, but recall, as I started, the Constitution stipulated the federal government would maintain a Navy and directed the armies to be raised as necessary. No funds would be appropriated for more than two years. If the country's leaders were determined to prosecute a long-term war, the nation's founding document compelled them to return regularly to the American people for money and support. America's founders had hoped to avoid, of course, the overgrown military establishments that characterized the European empires of their era. Nearly 200 years later, Eisenhower concluded that the jig was up. Perhaps that old model was gone for good. In his farewell address, uh, delivered January 17, 1961, he explained, until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. America's makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions a military-industrial complex. This conjunction of immense military establishment and large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. Eisenhower rarely doubted the need for a strong military establishment in order to compete with and ultimately prevail over the Soviet Union and its communist allies. But he worried constantly about the impact that a decades-long struggle would have on the institutions of government inside of the United States. And yes, despite his po and yet, despite his popularity and his demonstrated expertise in all things military, Eisenhower was unable to stem the cries to do more. World War II had changed American attitudes towards standing armies and a permanent peacetime military establishment, and the Cold War effectively finished the transformation. By the time the Cold War ended, the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991, Americans' military establishment had become a permanent fixture of the country's political, economic, and even cultural life. I show this chart, this is uh, spending in constant dollars, 2017 dollars, and again, you can see that what Eisenhower was confronting at the time that he gave his speech, he had managed ever so briefly to sort of slow the growth, bring it down, of course, the end of the Korean War allowed him to cut spending, but through most of the 1950s, it stayed at about 10% of GDP overall, and about flat in real dollar terms. Of course, then we can see the peaks, Vietnam, Cold War, Iraq and Afghanistan. If you look carefully, you will notice that every single peak, every single valley never returned to the valley before. These are in constant dollars, right? Constant inflation-adjusted dollars. So that's what he was worried about, and he, I think he was on to something. Um, if you're familiar with the farewell address, which I suspect many of you are, I would also encourage you to take a look at a, a, a speech called the Chance for Peace speech. Uh, I'm going out of order a little bit, but it's, it's worth uh, dwelling on for a moment. It was one of the first public speeches he gave as president, and he explained that this 
nation at arms was not merely uh, spending uh, the, the blood of its, the, the, its treasure, but it was also spending the talents of its uh, scientists. Uh, and this is what he said. The best and worst cases of this looming Cold War can be simply stated. The worst is atomic war. The best, he said, would be a life of perpetual fear and tension, a burden of arms draining the wealth and the labor of all peoples, a wasting of strength that defies the American system or the Soviet system or any system to achieve true abundance and happiness for the peoples of this earth. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. I like to compare the two speeches, not just because they are truly bookends on his presidency, but because it demonstrates that this concern that he had was not discovered in January of 1961. It's a concern that he harbored going back to his days as a major in the United States Army from the early 1930s. And so in that respect, uh, I think that the, the, the farewell address stands out even more uh, starkly. One last point about the farewell address, I'll just say quickly. Um, Dwight Eisenhower was about the last person you would expect to give one of the most important speeches of the 20th century. He was a horrible speaker. <laughs> uh, he uh, weekly would give um, uh, uh, press conferences, televised press conferences. Again, there was nothing else on television, so people would watch the president field questions from the, from the we do that now too, but it's not the president. Um, and he was sort of notorious for his garbled syntax and malapropisms and whatnot, and yet this speech has stood the test of time. It's not merely what he said, which was profound enough, but it was that he said it. He, of all people, his, whose reputation and uh, qualifications to opine on matters of national security was and should have been unassailable. So he warned that this, he worried and he warned that this thing, which he hoped would be temporary, might be permanent, and he was right. By the end of the Cold War, we had maintained military spending at very, very high levels, far higher than had been uh, the norm prior to, of course, World War II. Uh, and then, after the Cold War ended, the United States created a new rationale for maintaining military forces in great numbers and deployed pretty much as they had been throughout the entire Cold War. Stockman called the Defense Planning Guidance in 1992. The object of US foreign policy, it said, was to prevent the reemergence of a new rival capable of challenging US power in any vital area, including Western Europe, Asia, or the territory of the former Soviet Union. To accomplish this task, the United States would retain preponderant military power, not merely to deter attacks against the United States, but also to deter potential competitors, including longtime US allies such as Germany and Japan, from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. Uh, I think they succeeded rather well, uh, uh, maybe too well. And so I want to finish my, my remarks tonight. I have plenty of time for questions. Just talking a little bit about the current model and how, uh, again, how different it is from the vision of the founders. The current model is sometimes, we call it primacy. Some people call it deep engagement. Others call it benevolent global hegemony. 
It's really a mouthful. Um, uh, there's basically three, uh, two, sort of two core premises, and they, they obviously go together. And the first is the United States is responsible for maintaining world peace, and this obviously requires a large, active, and costly military. It's, they, talk, they talk a lot about shaping the international order. I don't know, I think that the international order is rather large and complicated, so shaping it is rather hard. But there are three key assumptions that go underneath these uh, concepts. The first is that uh, the geography that the founders once placed a lot of faith in uh, was essentially rendered moot by new technologies. And the threats were far more persistent and urgent than anything they could ever imagine, and they're only getting worse. A second key component of this is that our security guarantees, this discouraging of countries like Germany and Japan to play a larger role in their region, uh, was, uh, would add to our security and would not increase our defense burden, that they would actually be supporting uh, of us uh, and it would not, we would not have to worry about things like free riding. And the last is that the military is essential, a U.S. military presence is essential to the health of the international economy. Now, I don't have time to go in detail into all these uh, assumptions, but let me just suggest that all three are, uh, uh, should be subjected to greater scrutiny. There are, uh, there are key components of those arguments, all three of them, which aren't entirely true. And again, I'll sort of, I'll sort of skip over that. If you want to get into that more in the q and I'll leave some time for that. I would summarize the overarching problem with primacy as this. First of all, it's not required. It's not true that technology has rendered our geographic advantages moot. We still do have critical advantages that uh, the founders would envy and that our contemporaries do envy. In fact, many of our contemporaries ask, not always so uh, pol politely, what are you afraid of? <laughs> I hear that quite often, actually. What on earth are you afraid of? Second, it is inconsistent with our founding principles um, and our governing traditions. And if we believe, as I think many of us do, that those traditions or principles are worth cherishing, then we should be concerned that the new foreign policy that we've pursued over the last 20 or 25 years is really profoundly inconsistent with those other principles. And lastly, it's costly and therefore counterproductive to liberty. Um, I will show one last chart to sort of put this all in perspective. This is where we are today. You can see that military spending has come down as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have come down, but please pay attention to this yellow line. That yellow line is military spending in inflation-adjusted dollars during the Cold War. So in other words, when you hear people say that the U.S. military has been cut to the bone and is imp it's impossible for the U.S. military to defend the United States, ask yourself, why is it that that military is, in inflation-adjusted dollars, so much more expensive than the military that fought and defeated the Soviet Union? We, of course, are in the midst of a debate over increasing that. This little red line is the Nettlesome Budget Control Act, which is trying to limit the growth of uh, discretionary spending, both defense and non-defense. President Trump's proposal was slightly higher than that, and the uh, budget that's actually being debated and has just been voted on re recently uh, is uh, above just over $700 billion. Right? So if the current 
House and Senate versions are reconciled, and if they can figure out how to fix this problem of the Budget Control Act, they'll be spending more money, but they're not spending nearly as much as they think is required. It's merely a down payment uh, for the next round. Um, let me close with this, just a few quick points about where I think we should be going. I've tried to make the case, not merely because uh, it's inconsistent with our founding principles, but I don't think it's necessary for the United States to adopt a very uh, interventionist foreign policy around the world. We don't have to be deployed as we are around the world, and we could, in fact, adopt a more restrained foreign policy. Um, and whereas primacy requires a large active military geared towards shaping the international order, my vision, restraint, calls for a large, rarely used military geared toward defense. And that, I think, would be much more consistent with the founder's intent and also much cheaper and then less, and therefore less threatening to liberty. So I have managed, in spite of myself, to leave even extra time for Q&A or extra time for you guys to begin, begin your libations. So let's uh, open up the question and answer, get the lights up. Thank you all very much. Um, please wait for the microphone, and I would be happy to uh, take your question. I might even answer them. Question, question. Where's the mic? Tom, go ahead. Yeah, right there. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much for your speech. I actually am an Afghanistan veteran myself. Thank you, sir. Um, it, thank you. Um, my brother is over there right now, in fact. Um, he's serving in the Air Force. So a couple weeks ago, I tuned into a Cato Institute um, little lecture panel that they had on going forward from Afghanistan. Right. And my question for you is there, there really was three alternatives that were, that were posed in that, that panel where they said, Okay, one alternative is that we could just walk away from this war altogether, cut our losses, and just go home. Right. And essentially that would mean that the Taliban's gonna take over Afghanistan again, and we go back to pre-2001 Afghanistan. Right. The other alternative is that we maintain a base in Afghanistan in, in perpetuity, sort right. of like what we're doing in Japan and in you know, yes. Germany and stuff like that. The other alternative, which I thought was really interesting, was that we actually try to bring the Taliban to the bargaining table right. and that we actually try to agree to right. a settlement here. So I'm just curious as what your thoughts are on going forward here because I actually really agree with your conclusion here that like we can't maintain this in, in perpetuity, right. but we, we do need to have some sort of political agreement here as to how we go forward. And I mean, I think we all saw what happened with Bo Bergdahl. I mean, you trade you know four uh, Taliban guys for one, one soldier and that really becomes right. a, a massive uh, national debate, and I, I don't think we could really even come to the table with the Taliban, especially with our, our administration now. So I'm Thank you very much. What was your name? I didn't catch your uh, name. Chris. Thank Chris. You. Hey, Chris. I can remember that. Um, uh, thank you for the question. Thank you for your service. Um, I agree that the panel was excellent. The discussion was very rich. The people who are making these arguments are extremely sort of well, sort of well versed in the facts and the logic of it. Um, but I think most interesting that came out of that discussion was the middle option, the option of negotiating with the Taliban. And Stephen Biddle, who's, who's a fairly famous writer about these things, has uh, written about this many times. Uh, he and I have been on panels many times. And he specifically called attention to the Bo Bergdahl case. He said, if we are going to negotiate a settlement here with the Taliban, then we will have to summon 
the political will to make what will obviously be a highly unpopular decision, that is, to allow the Taliban some measure of political power sharing, right? And if you recall, uh, for those of you who didn't watch it, you can, I encourage you to do so, uh, the point being, if we were not able, if, if President Obama was not able to sell the idea of recovering an American serviceman, again, leaving aside the rather awkward circumstances surrounding him being captured, which I will admit, extremely awkward. But the mere fact that the President of the United States would negotiate at all with the Taliban was un just unconscionable. That notion was just completely just ridiculous, right? And he, in fairness, didn't make much of an effort. It just sort of happened, and he took the hit, hit for it. But I think the message from that incident was to anyone else watching, don't think for a minute that you will be able to convince the American people that anything less than a decisive victory in which the Taliban is no longer involved in the governing of Afghanistan, nothing, anything short of that will be completely unacceptable. That's not going to happen, and therefore, we're never going to leave. I've written a lot about this. I've said a lot about this since the president's announcement in August. I've talked to some of you about it already today. I say, of all of the people in the world, certainly the United States, Donald J. Trump was the person to get us out of Afghanistan. He had a mandate for getting us out of Afghanistan. And I submit to you, if Donald Trump cannot get us out of Afghanistan, no one will. All right? So I think what we are in, what is in store for us is a long-term presence, indefinite, small scale, we're not talking about ten, many tens of thousands, although perhaps it could creep up to 20,000, perhaps, um, but not actually believing that those 20,000 troops are gonna be able to accomplish what 100,000 or more couldn't. And so merely, it's just, a, it's just political face saving. It's just, we don't want whatever bad is going to happen to occur on our watch, and we most importantly don't want if we pull out, something bad happened, and then for us to get blamed for it. So it's just a recipe for continuing this war indefinitely. And that's what I think is going to happen. So my advice, given that, sort of bowing to political reality, not liking it, just explaining it, my advice to uh, uh, those in the Pentagon is, let's just make sure these guys don't get killed. Because if all you're doing is political cover, it would be really immoral to be exposing them to great risk. If this is all this is about, We'll see. No, I'm not. No, you can't ask a question. What are you talking about? Someone other than Tom. Yeah, Kurt, right here. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Sir. So um, I think the ideas that you talked about uh, going back to the founding fathers uh, is compelling. Uh, at the same time, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the current threats that we face, which are very different. Uh, and just mentioning a couple, but there are many. Um, you know, an unpredict unpredictable tyrant, North Korea, with very, very dangerous weapons. Right. Uh, Non-state actors uh, doing awful things all around the world, uh, including here in this country, as we know. Right. Uh, what, um, you know, additional things should we be focused on that are, um, I mean, you talk about restraint with a strong defense. But do we need to preempt to some extent in order to prevent 
right. uh, aggression from some of those types of actors. Let me, um, I'm going to spend most of my time answering the question about terrorism and non-state actors. I'll try to deal with the North Korea question fairly quickly. Not because it's not the most important, but actually because it is the most important. I do think it's, it's most important for us to differentiate and everyone to be very clear on the difference between preemption and prevention. If there is evidence of an imminent attack that's coming from North Korea, we do not have to suffer the blow before striking them. That's preemption. That's legitimate self-defense. And no one would quarrel with that. But taking action against this regime without evidence of an imminent threat, that's aggression. We might call it prevention, but it's just aggression. And for, for understandable reasons, that sort of posture is looked down upon by international community and things like that. Most importantly, if we were to wage war in that fashion, we would be responsible for the aftermath, just as we were responsible for the aftermath in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and trust me when I tell you, that uh, is a much, much, much more difficult problem than we faced in Iraq. So my advice to the Trump administration is do not adopt a preventive war posture. Communicate clearly to the North Koreans what we are prepared to preempt but that still leaves a lot of room for uh, us not initiating a conflict with the North Koreans. <clears throat> On non-state actors, terrorism. Uh, Eric Opner and Trevor Thrall, my colleagues, uh, Eric was one of the panelists on the Afghanistan uh, panel that Chris referred to. They have published a long paper that we put out earlier this year on uh, stepping back from the war on terror. I, I commend it to you highly, to all of you. Uh, the basic premise is this. Uh, 16 years in, we don't have a lot to show for this war. Uh, in fact, you could make a pretty good case that our military interventions around the world have made things worse. They've certainly made things worse for the people unfortunate enough to be living in the countries where we're waging war. That is incontrovertible. As far as our level of safety here in the United States, I don't think that you can make a case that our military interventions around the world are why there have not been multiple terrorist attacks here in the United States, anything on the order of 9-11, as we, as we assumed was going to happen after 9-11. Instead, I think you see a law enforcement model, intelligence gathering model, could be perfectly effective, reasonably effective, what have you, in dealing with the threat of terrorism here in the United States. Most of the terrorist incidents that have occurred and most of the plots that have been disrupted are, um, uh, thankfully, rather uh, sort of absurd. I encourage one of my colleagues, John Mueller, has put together a long list of the various terrorist, uh, uh, suspected terrorist plots. Um, there are many. My personal favorite is the one of the terrorists who are going to uh, detonate a bomb at the base of the Sears Tower in which it would topple into Lake Michigan and then swamp a nearby federal penitentiary, which would then allow the, I'm not kidding, it goes, it, which would then allow the inmates of that penitentiary to get out and then rise up and take over the United States of America. The, these sorts of, of, of plots. And, and so my point is simply this. There is, a, there is a terrorist threat, but we have to put that threat into context, and we have to combat it in a way that is consistent with our principles and our values and our laws, 
and that is actually effective. And we can do that better if we rely less on the military instrument and more on law enforcement and intelligence functions. I believe that. I think they make a very strong case. So again, I commend it to you, Kurt, if you haven't had a chance to look at it. Absolutely. All right, other questions other than Tom? Yes. <laughs> right there. Did you have your hand up? You didn't have your hand up. Yes, you did. Right there, right there. Yes, yes, yeah, Mackenzie, right. I didn't know if there was some behind me. No, you're right there. <clears throat> okay, so I was wondering, what is your view on what would be the alternative to U.S. primacy? I know that some people think that it would be a nice multipolar peace. I know Ferguson writes that he would think it would be an anarchic fight over right. the new hegemon, the new dark ages. Yes, um, new dark ages, yes. Right. I was just wondering what your opinion was on that. Well... I hope you believe me when I tell you, if I thought that's what was likely to happen, I wouldn't be advocating it, okay? So I think that Neil Ferguson is wrong. It's not the first time I've said that. Um, the, uh, I think that the advocates of primacy do not take seriously enough the constraints that are operating on our system, th that still exist in our system. It was possible, in fact, you could argue even fairly easy for the United States to be the dominant power for a long period of time when we accounted for 50 or 40 or even 30% of global output. But now we're at about 22, 21, approaching 17 or 18. And that means that if we're going to maintain the same level of effort with a shrinking share of economic output, what does that mean? We all have to try a lot harder. That's, that's inevitably what it means. Now, they believe that that can be, man that can be managed, and, and many of them actually buy into the logic of NSC 68, which is military spending isn't a drag on the economy. Military spending is a stimulus to the economy. What's the problem? We should be spending more. Um, so I think it's not so surprising that the leading advocates of primacy are statists. They are not troubled by the tendency of war to grow the state. So instead, I say we should take seriously these constraints. We should take seriously the, the increasing difficulty that we, the United States, will have in doing this all by ourselves and aspire to a genuinely multipolar order, a multipolar order that no longer discourages countries that look like us and act like us, that discourages them from doing more in their neighborhood and ultimately in the world. I think that was extraordinarily short-sighted when it was adopted, it wasn't necessary, and yet here we are 20 years later with no reasonable alternative, people say, to primacy because we've created this situation. You know, We are reaping what we sowed. Uh, and, uh, and my argument is that we need to take seriously uh, the, the ability of other countries to defend themselves and their interests at least as well as we do it for them. And that's what I call for. All right, last question. Many hands. I'm not going to, right? No, I'm not going to call on you, Steve, either. Okay, right there, sir. You, sir. Yes, in the hat. Yes, sir. In the, in the chapeau. Well, I hope I can be coherent after several glasses of wine. I've had none. I've had none. But so several I, years I, ago, Robert Kagan wrote a very thin book. Yes. On essentially U.S. military power. Yes how it had defended the, the status of the United States, cleared the naval paths through the world. Yes. I found it a very compelling book. As did many people. 
And yes. I see that your view is rather different. The opposite, actually. <laughs> Perhaps you could comment <laughs> sure. on that book. No, it's an excellent. Uh, he's actually written several thin books, and 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 uh, the one that probably you got the most attention is called *Of Paradise and Power*. Um, Robert Kagan is an excellent writer. He's a very uh, eloquent uh, and an emphatic advocate of the current grand strategy. Um, I uh, I do not disagree with him that that the U.S. power in the immediate aftermath of World War II played a critical role in establishing institutions and norms and values that define the current world order, which is under threat. I don't dispute that. Where he and I disagree is on our ability to sustain it over the long term. And on the, in his view, on the inadvisability of other countries having power and interests. That's where he and I disagree. Again, fairly forcefully. I believe that we, the United States, and the world would be better off if the world was not simply dependent upon us for all of these things. I also believe that he confuses the importance of American power in creating these institutions with the importance of American power in sustaining them. Those are two different things, right? And I think the ability of the international system to survive without the United States playing as dominant a role as it played in the 40, late 40s and 50s and 60s is possible and something that we should strive for. So I'm well familiar with the book, if you're interested, I wrote a fairly lengthy review of his book uh, um, uh, several years ago on the Cato website, and, and um, I recommend it to you if you can sort of get a flavor for me, sort of chat, you know, sparring with him in print. So, in the back of the room, how much time do we have, Tom? What's how much time left? I would say eleven minutes. Maximum. Eleven minutes. I got a red light here. Okay, in the back, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Absent Superpower, by Peter Zeon. It's out, former Stratford, maybe. For, oh, for, yeah, uh, Accidental Superpower. Accidental Superpower, yes. Well, that was yes. his first one. Yes. That's his first book. Oh, there's another one. He came out with a second book. Oh. The no, Absent okay. Superpower. Okay, no, I know the first one. And for those of you that are not, just the two seconds is, the thesis of the book is, because we are now energy independent. Yeah. Uh, therefore, the United States, and they have not won a war since 1945. Right. We have no desire to do what's necessary. To, this is his thesis. Right. We have no desire to do what's necessary to really win. Therefore, we will withdraw from the world's policemen mm -hmm. and guarantor of the shipping lanes, et cetera, with right. our Navy, because we will not be needed. Right. We, and we don't need it ourselves because we are energy independent, we are manufacturally independent, we can do some foreign trade, et cetera. Do you subscribe to this uh, philosophy that we can, the United States can demilitarize, can come home, can stay out of foreign entanglements because we are now self-sufficient? Um, perhaps, but not for the same reason. I'm gonna focus just on the aspect of, of what you're saying uh, as it pertains to energy independence. Um, this is a fiction. The notion that the United States could insulate itself from uh, the, the sort of workings of the international energy market by becoming, by relying only on our own domestic sources was always incorrect. 
Oil is traded, natural gas, and other major commodities are traded on a global market. Therefore, a supply disruption in one place affects the price everywhere. Um, the good news is that those markets are far more resilient and far more diversified than they were 40 or 50 years ago. And so the effects are, and this has been demonstrated, it, with each successive supply shock, the effect is felt less and less and for a shorter period of time. So to the extent that we justified our presence on the basis of insulating ourselves from these shocks, then we don't need it anymore. But my argument is that was a bad rationale from the, very, from, from the beginning, even before we increased domestic production. Let me say this. I was in the Navy. My job was to defend the sea lanes. I was told that many times. I've seen them. They're, they're nice. Um, Straits of Hormuz, Strait of Gibraltar, I've done it all. Not all of it. Uh, it's a big ocean. The, with no disrespect to my former service and the folks I know still serving in it, uh, the United States Navy does not guarantee the free flow of goods and goods through shipping lanes, not and certainly not by ourselves. The United States is one of many actors that cons cares about the the free movement of goods through on the seas, um, and the. The problem that we created for ourselves was in providing these services for everyone and not expecting anyone else to do any of the work themselves. Let me just say it in a different way. I think the likelihood of these shipping lanes being disrupted for any great length of time is hugely exaggerated. Most of the time they will not stay closed and even if they do, the seas being what they are, ships route around it. And that's what's happened throughout human history. It's even easier now than it was 40 or 50 years ago. So, I'll say, so, so what that means is that the types of people who would wish to disrupt global trade don't have the power to do so, that is non-state actors, pirates, various bandits, don't have the power to do so for very long. And the people who benefit from the free flow of goods through the shipping lanes all have a vested interest in keeping it that way, not just the United States of America. So that's what I'm aspiring to. In my book, The Power Problem, many years ago, um, I fixed upon uh, an article that the chief of naval operations then, um, uh, Admiral Mullen, wrote called the 1,000-ship Navy. And when he wrote that article, he was talking about precisely that. The United States of America wasn't going to maintain 1,000 naval combatants. The United States of America would be one of many countries that would maintain navies that would protect the free flow of goods and services, goods through the waterways. That's what we should be aspiring to. It's sort of like the question that was asked earlier about multilateralism. What does multilateralism look like? It means many countries contributing to keeping these systems open and free, not just one country. All right, time for one last question. Right there. Oh, um, uh, wait for the mic, just real quick, so we can get it on the. I'm sure you realize, and what terrifies me about North Korea is the talk about the Koreans taking out our grid, the electric grid. Oh, the grid. EMP stuff, right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and they say, you know, they don't need to put a bomb on our shores, but they have the capability right. of taking out the electric grid, which could destroy, and they say, you know, so many people would be dead. I mean, we wouldn't have electricity, right. power. This is more terrifying. And then, you know, and 
and yet there's speculation that they're already planning this, you know, when I right. read. So there you get to the preemptive. I mean, what do we do? I mean, that could happen so fast. And if they take out the grid and we haven't been able to... Uh, well, I would, I would treat an attack like that as I would a treat, treat a nuclear attack on the United States. And, and EMP, the, the, the what we, electromagnetic pulse, the best way to create one is to detonate a nuclear device in the air, okay? Um, and so my attitude is that our posture towards that sort of threat should be the same as our posture towards a threat of a direct attack on the United States with a nuclear weapon, which is that we would retaliate with the full force of our arsenal and they would be destroyed. Um, not, not completely, no. No, no, no. The retaliation would not depend upon, no. The, the retaliation we could carry out, remember, the U.S. nuclear arsenal is distributed across many different platforms and many different, in many different places. So, so no, it would not prevent us from retaliating. I think, again, this gets to, I think it gets to Kurt's question, is we need, we the United States need to do a much better job of communicating what exactly it is that we are trying to deter, right? We're trying to deter that and other things that are horrible like it. I still believe that a nuclear detonation is even worse than EMP, myself. Um, but you get my point, right? Is we need to spell out very, very clearly what it is that we are trying to prevent them from doing. And it worked, knock on wood, it worked well, reasonably well, well enough in the Cold War. There were some dangerous incidents, but it worked well enough in the Cold War. And so I am not so skeptical of the principle of deterrence by itself to continue to work. One last point on this. I wrote about this a few weeks ago. The Chinese are helping, trying to help us sort this out. They issued a statement right after President Trump uh, made the remarks about fire and fury. And they explained that if the United States of America initiated a conflict on the Korean Peninsula, then the Chinese would support their ally, North Korea. However, they also said that if North Korea initiates a conflict against the United States, then they're on their own. It was a very important statement. So it's clear what, where the Chinese red lines are, and I think there are red lines too. So I would close with that. I say again, it's really important to be able to differentiate between preemption and prevention, and that helps deterrence rather than undermines it. Does that, do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Right. As far as the grid, let me just, last point on the grid. I haven't done a lot of work on this myself. I studied it many years ago, and it's, I'm sure it's changed from the last time I studied it, which is um, the kinds of things that we in the United States can do to build resilience in the grid to protect against squirrels, lightning strikes, trees. You understand what I'm saying? There are lots of things that disrupt the grid, right? There are things that fall down, power, you know, uh, power is disrupted and whatnot. The kinds of things that we can do to make that grid more vulnerable to those types of more common problems will also be useful in the bigger problems. So I have no quarrel with trying to diversify and, 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 and strengthen the resiliency of the grid, but I would do it mostly for those other reasons, not because of the highly unlikely 
cat catastrophic event of an uh, electromagnetic pulse. Look, you guys have been great. You managed to stay awake, or at least most of you that I can see. Thank you very much. In spite of Tom's efforts, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom.